when the atheist Robert G. Ingersoll was delivering a series of lectures against Christ and the Bible, his speaking ability usually assured him of a large crowd. One night, after an inflammatory speech in which he severely attacked man's faith in the Savior, he dramatically took out his watch and said, I'll give God a chance to prove that he is sovereign. Let's see if in five minutes he strikes me dead. I challenge him to strike me dead. At the beginning, after he hit his stopwatch, there was silence. Then there was an uneasiness. Some people left the lecture hall, and actually one lady fainted. At the end of the five minutes, he said, See, there is no God. I am still very much alive. Ingersoll certainly proved one thing that night. He demonstrated that even the most defiant sinner cannot exhaust the mercy of God in five minutes. God demonstrated his mercy to Robert Ingersoll that night because he didn't give the unbeliever what he deserved. Let's pray. Father, thank you. This has been such an encouraging series to me personally, and I trust to others who are with us. I ask that you would again magnify your great name. May everyone see the magnificence of your nature. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's our first point as you're turning with me to Exodus chapter 34. Marvel at the mercy of God. Marvel at the mercy of God. So as you're flipping uh, to Exodus 34, let me give you the background. In chapter 32, we have the incident of the golden calf. Moses was in the presence of God. There was a commotion down below, and Moses had been given the Ten Commandments. When he came down the mountain, he found that the people were having idolatrous practices, and he broke those two tablets of stone. You flip the page, you go to chapter 33, and Moses has a very audacious request. In verse 18 of Exodus 33, he says, show me your glory. And God obliges Moses, because in chapter 34, we have Moses again up on the mount in the presence of God, and he's given another set of commandments. But listen very carefully here as we pick it up down in verse 5 of Exodus chapter 34. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The name. When Moses said, show me your glory, what is God going to reveal his name? Not just the name. Not like I throw out Yahweh or throw out Jesus, the name above every name. The name represents the person. And now we have the continuation in verse 6, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful. And you might want to stop right there and look at the name merciful. One of the attributes of God is that he is merciful. It means to have compassion. And by the way, this adjective is only used of God. He's merciful, 
gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth. Verse 7, keeping mercy. I see again, keeping mercy for thousands. He's plenteous in his mercy. He has a sufficiency of mercy for all people. He's keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So after Moses has this revelation from God concerning his wonderful nature, in verse 8, what else could Moses do? But worship. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. How appropriate. As we understand the nature of God, we should also bow down and worship. We have a Psalm of David recorded in the book of uh, Chronicles. In 1 Chronicles 16 and verse 34, it says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. The reason now is given, it's a little Hebrew conjunction, he, for he is good. And a second conjunction, he again, for his mercy endures how long? Forever. His mercy endures forever. You get the impression that in the nature of this eternal God is the characteristic attribute, perfection of mercy. So therefore, there is no lack of mercy that the Almighty can provide. We're leaving now Exodus chapter 34, and let's go to the middle of our Bibles to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. And in Psalm 103, we have expressions about the mercy of God. Uh, Picking it up now in verse 11, this is a Psalm of David. For as the heavens are high above the earth. Catch this, heavens, earth. Now you have to go back, first of all, to 1000 BC. You know, today when we see a, a, a jet in the sky, we could say, oh, it's maybe cruising at 30,000 feet. In the first uh, millennium BC, you just didn't have air travel. So it, when the individual looks up, the heavens must have seemed so far away. This is what uh, you could call a mirrorism. mirrorism. You have two contrasting words showing the entirety. And in essence, two contrasting words, heaven and earth, but representing everything in between. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. Do you catch the analogy? Heavens and earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. How merciful is God? Look at verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, it cannot be measured. Uh, Consider Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. As far as the east is from the west, so far he removed our transgressions from us. And now the argument from the lesser to the greater, as the father, human father, pities his children— So the Lord pities those who fear him. 
Why? For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Down now to verse 17. Let me read this to you. But the mercy of the Lord, there's a term again, the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. In other words, it's eternal in nature. Why? Because God's nature, his essence, his being, his perfections are eternal as well. So take heart, child of God. There's no lack of mercy from the eternal God. This is why we can come boldly to the throne of grace, that we might find grace and mercy to help when in time of need. There's no lack. Long ago, a poor woman from the slums of London was invited to go with a group of friends to the ocean. She had never been to the ocean before, and her friends gave her this marvelous holiday. When she saw the ocean, she broke out into tears. Her friends were rather perplexed, wondering why she would be crying when she was given such a great holiday. Pointing to the ocean, she answered, this is the only thing that I'd ever seen that there was enough of. As the ocean is plenteous in water, so the mercy of God is abundant for you and me. We should marvel at the mercy of God because there's no lack thereof. Now, let's go to the New Testament. First Peter, uh, we've looked at two Old Testament passages. First Peter chapter 1, picking it up in verse 3. First Peter chapter 1, down in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his, and catch the expression, abundant mercy. Uh, Ephesians 2, 4, uh, written by the Apostle Paul, says that God is rich in mercy. Peter expresses the same idea, but that God has abundant mercy. He's begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. And then Peter uses alliteration. He picks three A's, if you will, three alphas, in order to communicate this great inheritance that children of God have. To an inheritance incorruptible. Not liable to decay is the idea of incorruptible. It's imperishable. It's eternal in nature. So it's incorruptible, undefiled. The concept is unsoiled. That same term is used of the great high priest, Jesus Christ, in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 26. And the third characteristic and that does not fade away. It is unfading. And then Peter adds, it's reserved in heaven for you. And reserved occurs with the perfect tense verb, a completed action in the past with the results continuing. That is what has been given to us because of God's abundant mercy. We have this wonderful inheritance that is before. So number one, we are to marvel at the mercy of God. Now, our second point, see, because remember when we're looking at the communicable attributes of God, we understand the nature of God, but these are the attributes he shares with us. 
in essence, these are the things he says we need to imitate from him. So our second point is manifest the mercy of God. As you're turning with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, manifest the mercy of God. If there's someone who needed mercy, it was Paul. When you read in 2 Corinthians 11 all that he had suffered, he needed God's mercy. And as God gave him mercy, as God supplied him with grace, then Paul could extend that mercy and that grace to others. And that's how it works with you and me. Let me read verses 3 through 4, and then I'll come back and explain them. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So in verse 3, the Father is called the Father of of mercy. See, because all mercy flows from him. He is the possessor of all mercy and grants us mercy in our time of need, too. So he's the father of mercies. He's the God of all comfort. See, because he pities us and he knows that we are dust. He understands our frame, as we saw uh, there from uh, Psalm 103. He, he understands just how weak we are. So therefore, he comforts us. Why? That we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble. Isn't that wonderful? In the way that God comforts us, we come to the throne of grace. He encourages us. We turn to his word. It builds us up. God lavishes his mercy upon us. And as he shows compassion to us, he comforts our souls. Then we can turn around and do the same to others. But you have to first experience it. And then when you experience it, then you know how to turn around and to give comfort to others. And this is exactly what Paul wants us to do, as we have been comforted by God, we need to turn around and comfort others. How do you extend comfort to those going through trials? I'm beginning my 32nd year of full-time pastoral ministry, and I've always had a card ministry. Uh, at my desk, just behind me, I have a cabinet, and in the cabinet, all kinds of greeting cards for every occasion. So when I know people need encouragement, I pull out the little box with notes of encouragement, and I just sit there, and I write it out. I put the stamp on it, and I send it out. And when people get it in the mail, when they get that card, they're encouraged because someone took time, pick out a card, spend the money for the postage, which isn't cheap and then to handwrite that card. Cards, great way to give encouragement. And remember, ministry that costs nothing is worth nothing. It's fine to send out the emails. It's fine uh, to use the iMessage. It's fine, it's fine, it's fine. All those different means to, to give encouragement through writing, but a card is a tangible thing that will touch people's hearts. I have had people come to me and they say, Pastor, I really cherish your cards. I keep every one I get. So 
one way to give encouragement to people. A second way, uh, when people are maybe physically hurting, provide a meal for them. Uh, maybe they're not up to cooking. Maybe they don't even feel, feel well enough to go to the store and buy something, to go to the uh, market, to purchase food, or to the restaurant to pick up some food. Maybe you could provide a meal uh, for that person. It's great encouragement uh, to individuals. You could also pray with someone uh, in person or pick up the phone and call them. Say, I just want to take a moment and I want to pray with you right now. And pray that the God of all comfort would comfort that person's heart. Uh, someone who's sickly, uh, think about this. What are the things they cannot do? Uh, run some errands, go uh, to the pharmacy to pick up a prescription. But how about even doing a little bit of cleaning in their house in order to encourage them? Uh, financially, uh, consider this. In the first century, the, the saints in Jerusalem were suffering. They had great poverty. And when we read in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, we learn about the Macedonians, those from the region of Greece. And by the way, when Paul began the church of Philippi, that was his first church plan in Europe. It was a big deal. But those from that region understood the needs of the poor saints in Jerusalem, and yet they were deeply impoverished. That's what we learned from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I mean, they were poor, and yet they gave generously to meet the needs of the saints. There are many ways uh, to give encouragement and to build up those that need God's mercy, extend that to them. And this is an important thing to know. It doesn't come naturally, but supernaturally. Yes, we are made in the image of God. Yes, we are privileged to be made in the moral, mental, and spiritual image of God. So people can show some compassion, but we're children of God. Uh, for us, there is a supernatural element to our lives. Consider Colossians. If you are then raised with Christ, Paul would write, in verse 1 of Colossians 3, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden. Your life is hidden, see, in God. Such an important concept. Positionally, we have been co-crucified with Christ. So therefore, as Paul would give us that concept in Galatians 2.20, it's not about me any longer. Uh, Jesus would tell his disciples uh, with the great commands to let a man deny himself. You know, the concept, do this once and for all. Make life no longer about you. Take up the cross. Take up your cross and then continually follow me. We need to be individuals who are co-crucified with Christ, but then because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ— there is a newness of life, and that's spelled out in Romans chapter 6 in verse 4. There's a new capacity that you have in order to express the communicable attributes of God to others, whether it's goodness, could be grace, it could be truth, it could be long-suffering, and it can be 
mercy. But we need to express these things by the power of God in our position in Jesus Christ. See, in that same chapter where I began in Colossians chapter 3, speaking about how we're with Christ in the sense of positionally we're crucified and raised to life, this is what Paul writes in Colossians 3.12, put on, see, and it's an imperative, it's commanding us to do this, tender mercies, put on tender mercies. Paul Harvey tells the story of an eight-year-old little boy named Ben, and he had entered a competition with McDonald's, and he won. So he was given a new bike. He brought his new bike home, and he thought, I already have a bike. So what did Ben do? He gave his brand new bike, not the old one, to a friend whose parents could not afford to buy him a bike. As time went on, the manager of McDonald's had heard that Ben had done this generous act, invited Ben and his parents in for a meal. Ben came in with his parents, and the manager presented Ben with a $100 gift certificate. So what did Ben do? Ben went cashed a certificate and purchased a crash helmet for his friend. See, for some people, giving is just second nature, and compassion should always move us to action likewise. With these things in mind, let's go now to the book of Matthew. Book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 6. You hear the word alms or almsgiving. The concept derives from the Greek, which means acts of mercy. See, it's acts of compassion. And that is what we have before us here in Matthew chapter 6. So in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount begins with a command. It's an imperative. It's a present tense imperative. Take heed. Take heed. Beware that you do not do your charitable deeds. That's your acts of mercy before men. It's not showtime. It's not to put the display before others because you want to receive the applause of men. Jesus says so very clearly, don't do these things to be seen by men. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. See, when you get all the applause because you're doing something that is to be seen by all, and, and everyone around you is clapping, they're applauding, they're praising you. That's your reward right there. It's, it's the applause of men. Jesus says, don't do it that way. Verse 2, therefore, when, and notice too, it doesn't ask if you are giving, but it assumes you're giving. Jesus, when he is preaching to his disciples, assumes that they're doing acts of mercy. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Jesus is speaking about the religious hierarchy. Obviously, 
they did things to be seen by men. In other words, there was almost an announcement, hear ye, hear ye, look at me and how great I am and how merciful I am. Jesus says those folks already have their reward. Verse 3, but when you do a charitable deed, an act of mercy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. What does that mean? It's to be done secretively. If possible, you want to do this without anyone knowing. There are times when you're meeting people's needs and others know. You might go to a home and you might provide a service for someone. There's other family members there. Of course, it's going to be known what you had done, but you don't do it for the applause of the other family members. That's what Jesus is saying, that your charitable deed may be in secret in verse 4, and your Father who sees in secret, because we cannot observe our Heavenly Father watching us, will himself reward you how? Openly. So there is blessing that goes with imitating the nature of God to be manifesting the mercy of God to others. We need to be doing this as a way of life. This is your assignment. Everyone that is listening or watching this sermon, here is your assignment. I need you to spend time, number one, doing what? Our first point, marveling at the mercy of God. You need to consider how great his mercy is to you, how you deserved death, eternal separation from God, but as far as the east is from the west, he removed your sins. Is that not mercy? <laughs> He's rich in mercy, as we're told in Ephesians 2, 4, and that's why we're saved, because we have a merciful God. So we need to take time and look at these passages in Exodus 34 and from Psalm 103. We need to go to 1 Peter chapter 1 and 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 6, and we need to meditate at the mercy of God, just how merciful he has been to us. And then... Number two, manifest the mercy of God. I gave you a list of suggestions of things that you could do from greeting cards to praying to meeting people's needs financially, whatever the case might be, whatever the need might be. You still need to manifest the mercy of God. And by the way, that also applies to the unsaved. In Jude, verses 22 and 23, speaking in the context of evangelism, we need to extend, we need to manifest the mercy of God to the lost, because if God's mercy had not been extended to us, we couldn't be saved. So therefore, we need to have the same concern, we need to have compassion, we need to pity the lost, that our hearts actually engage our feet and our mouths so we go and we bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to others. But we need to manifest 
the mercy of God. So this week, as you're meditating, as you're marveling at the mercy of God, your assignment is to act upon the leading of the Spirit of God to manifest the mercy of God. It's a hurting world. (laughs) Everywhere you turn, there are people that are depressed. There are people who have need. There are people who need compassion. And see, this is what Jesus says for us to do. Blessed are the merciful, we learn in Matthew 5, 7, for they shall obtain mercy. As you manifest the mercy of God to others, God supernaturally will manifest mercy back to you. So let's be those blessed individuals who act upon the nature of the invisible God who is merciful and now be his conduits, be his channels to manifest the mercy of God to others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are rich in mercy, that you have an abundant mercy, and that you share your mercy to us. We could not be saved without it. And now, Lord, is our responsibility to meditate on these things, to then marvel at your mercy. And then as we marvel at your mercy, may we manifest it to others that people could sense Christ through us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for watching today's sermon. There is a book that is the basis for the 14 lessons, Attributes of God on Fire. Uh, there are actually 10 other fire books. Or you can learn more about us at comermanorbiblechurch.com. And then I have a foundation, Ken J. Bird Senior Foundation.com. And finally, we have a father and son podcast. We would love to have you join us. God bless you.